Hello, everybody. Um, we hope you're really going to enjoy this episode, and it was a lot of fun talking about this movie that Jenna and I love very much. But before we begin the episode, we wanted to give a big shout out to our friend James, who helped us to salvage a lot of the recording after we had crashed and lost some of the episodes. So, big shout out to James, who is a tech genius and. You know, I know a lot of our listeners are CEOs and things like that of big time Fortune 500 companies. And I'm very confident that no matter where your company is in the world, our friend James could probably revolutionize your IT department. So big shout out, James. Thanks so much for making this episode happen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fear Response Podcast. We are so happy to have you. Yes, welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to be discussing... Um, one of mine and Jenna's favorite movies from the genre, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite movies ever, probably, depending yeah, on how long so. the list is. Yeah. Depending uh, how, like, yeah, like it's a list of a thousand or something, like easy. To oh remember. well, easily, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, you know, although we've had a bit of a dicey past of saying. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure our our parents introduced us to this movie. I think they really liked it, and we've been dead wrong. And it's culminated in us making disgusting remarks from The Exorcist and our dad having no idea what we were referencing. This one, we're absolutely sure mom, at the very least, really likes, right? And mom loves this one, even though she has said that ever since she had kids that she can't watch horror movies anymore. So we know that she's a liar. Um, and our conversation around not uh, mom not being able to watch horror movies makes it quite curious as to why this is one of her favorites. And uh, it led to a discussion where several, at least three of our family members were arguing with us pretty strongly that this is not a horror movie. Oh my God. Yeah. They really showed their whole ass on that one. <laughs> whole asses. Well, he is very curious because... <laughs> This is obviously a horror movie, and I think there ain't no doubt about it, personally speaking. No, I agree, and I felt like our arguments to that point were pretty tight, because Mm -hmm. I would think that if you ask any layman, any average Joe out on the street, what it takes for a movie to be a horror movie, they Mm -hmm. might say that it needs to be tense and that there's parts that are scary, And I think that you can't deny that there are parts where you're scared for the characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they might say it's gory. It's got that. They might say it's got a spooky vibe. It's got that. Evil character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Follows the uh, the stories of two serial killers, one of whom is a cannibal. So, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty heavy, intense stuff. And in my mind, uh, there's no argument about it. It's a horror movie. Yeah, and I think most people, at least fans of the genre, agree. And I think we handily won the argument. The only difference between now and then... I think so, too. (laughs) ...is we we didn't decide to rush to our childhood bedrooms and slam the door. But other than that, it was another (laughs) classic kind of child-versus-parent-type argument, right? Yeah, we when we even could have done that, we were at our parents' house. Could have done? We should have done. (laughs) We each could have run up to our old rooms and slammed the doors. You know what, though? That probably would have weakened our argument. They're like, oh, there they go again. They're like, hopefully it's a phase. <laughs> yeah. And I, I agree. And one of the things I I realized upon rewatching of this movie, because it had been some time, like, 
the themes and content of this movie are extremely dirty and gross and sordid. It, oh, it's yeah. like has a stench to it, this movie. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, for sure. You talk about a movie where, like you said, two active mm. serial killers at the forefront of the story. One of them who and- eats his victims. One of them who skins his victims. Right. And then also there's some really gross kind of sexual undertones too and Mm -hmm. there's murder and and it's like a manhunt and all this stuff and there's some pretty gross things that you're not even going to find in any kind of movie that gets a worse rap like a jason movie or something Mm -hmm. like that i mean there's a scene with simulated ejaculate that's pretty hardcore that's intense for me that's that's pretty intense that's pretty intense and so all the things that people might assume that like a Jason movie has or a Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger movie, this movie has it in spades, plus maybe more. And worse and like more realistic and grittier. So it's like more true to life and and scarier for that reason. Well, as fantastical as some things are, it is still pretty grounded, right? Uh, I think so. So all those things considered, why do you think that people even have the argument that it's a psychological thriller and not a horror? Why do you think that that people would even take that side. When it comes to, like, I don't even necessarily understand what psychological thriller means. No, because we were discussing this together, like, in terms of the psychology of it. Like, Mm. it's not confusing or, like, a trip. No twists. Yeah, there's there's nothing messing with your psyche about this movie. This one certainly is psychological in that they're dealing objectively with psychology. Psychiatric topics, yeah. But most psychological thrillers, quote unquote, don't like this one happens to. I think the distinction is that people are giving like a little nod that it's smart. Like this is clearly a smart movie. It's well written. You're having really smart characters in it. And if you're going to do that, then you need to come correct. Like you can't write smart characters well in a stupid way. You know what I mean? Can you you think of a movie where a character was supposed to be smart, but... It wasn't written that way. Well, more, like I this mean, person's supposed to be a genius. Countless books, you know, like I, I've, oh, like, I've dealt like with you a read, lot of yeah. thriller books, right? Yeah, because <laughs> like, you read some kind I don't of think like, that would ever happen. <laughs> some some dad thrillers kind of thing where it's like, well, that's a bit of a stretch to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think there probably are some good examples. None are coming to mind right now, but sometimes I look at like they'll throw in a psychiatrist character. Or, something like that, and they'll just say something that you're like, well, that would never happen. Like, of course that would never happen, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in this one, obviously it's a fantastical story that probably would never happen, but the things people are saying are backed by some reality. But basically at the end of the day, I think people are saying, well, this movie is smart and it's well-written and that brings it out of the horror movie category which is what really grinds mine and Jenna's gears because I don't know why you have to say, well, I don't like this genre and therefore if any movie is in this genre, I don't like it. Um, Yeah. So if I like a movie, I have to find a way to take it out of the genre. (laughs) Well, so yeah, I, I agree. I feel like you should judge movies based on their merits. Like I don't say I hate all comedies or I hate all dramas or I guess people with genre more like, quote-unquote genre films like fantasy and horror, they get a little bit more maybe dismissive of them. Like, yeah. I don't like that whole type. But I, I think that that's weird. And Me too. Okay, I'm going to tell you about, I have this guy that I work with who told me he doesn't read fiction 
Whoa. Period. And he thinks that it's a waste of time to read fiction because he says you can't learn anything. That sounds so boring. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, do you only read biographies and textbooks? Because I'm like, that sounds fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> like, that sounds awful. And like, I'm sorry, I love to read. I, I'm probably like 30% reading to learn. Like, I get yeah. through so many books that are trashy or who knows what, but they're like a page turner because I really like kind of murder yeah. mysteries and stuff. I would be so bored just going through only nonfiction books all the time. I, I could not believe this guy. And he was saying it to me with a straight face and argue. And I feel he, like with I, a straight face. Yeah, I've learned, but I've learned so much from fiction books. Like it's True. still re- real stuff still happens. And your vocabulary, like there's oh, just yeah. so much. There you go. Well, and it's like, we're not American, but how much did we learn about the Declaration of Independence from National Treasure? Oh, I would say I'm basically a, a scholar in yeah, the subject exactly. at this point. Yeah, so I, I agree. I think you can certainly learn plenty from fiction. And not just that, but they're parables, right? Most good works yeah. of fiction are parables that apply to daily life. So, I mean, certainly to say you can't learn from them is, is popcock. I don't get it. Yeah, shout out to that guy. <laughs> yeah but speaking of books we when we've discussed hmm. this previously we said that maybe part of the reason that this uh movie is like so tight and it is so good at telling the story in a cool and interesting way with lots of detail is because it's based on a book and a, a good popular book from an author who's written mm-hmm. a whole like series about the character of Lecter. so there's like a lot of um the source material that gave them a lot to work with for telling the story in a really cool way and I think that that probably helps. I think it often does. And I'm going through the book again right now. And the dialogue from the book is transposed verbatim to the movie. If you're listening to a conversation or, or basically a scene play out in the movie, it was word for word in the book as well. So obviously the book's a lot longer, more detail, but they were very faithful to the book. And it's one of the... I would say rare cases that, in my opinion, like the movie's much better than the book. Although I really like the book. I don't know if I'd say much better, but it it is great. I and I can I can understand the argument to say that it's better. It's just such a tight story. And I think that the the movie has left more of an impact on pop culture than the book did. I don't know how impactful the book was at the time of its release and uh, that sort of thing, but I mean the movie is infamous. Right. And everybody knows it. It's made so many pop culture references. Like when you say Hannibal, you might as well be saying cannibal. And I remember having a weird time when I was younger that I I thought they were synonymous with each other, which, you know, sorry for anybody named Hannibal. But it, it has had like such a big impact. And one of the things that really sets it apart, although still within in the genre, is it swept the Oscars. Yeah, we said extremely rare. Got the big five, like best actor for Anthony Hopkins, best actress for Jodie Foster, both of which very well deserved. Mm-hmm. Best best director, best adapted screenplay. What's the other one? So best director, best picture. Oh, best picture. That's what I didn't say. Best adapted screenplay. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see that happen again. But it certainly hasn't happened for another horror movie in the same way. And I think that's amazing because obviously... Anybody who knows much about horror knows that they get snubbed at the Oscars. Toni Collette is a shining mm-hmm. example after her performance in Hereditary, right? But like, mm-hmm. even imagine all the adapted screenplay Oscars. Mm-hmm. 
that should have been nominees or, or have won. So many great horror movies are based on great books. Even um, Jaws. That was a book um, first, too. Yeah, I know. I read it. Thankfully, the movie deviates quite a bit from the book. Sorry, Peter Benchley. <laughs> I think probably a lot of what is amazing about Jaws can be attributed to Steven Spielberg. I, I think that that's safe to say. <laughs> You're not, not the first take. to say it. No. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I think the Spielberg guy's got a real future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what was I going to say about Silence of the Lambs? Oh, good idea. You know, the first time I ever saw it, our cousin Jessica, who's older than me and uh, older than you even, right? By a couple years? Oh, even, yeah. Even, even if you can imagine, <laughs> if you can imagine how old that would be. And she invited me over to watch it. And I think it was like wanting to introduce me to scary movies in like kind of a safe and fun way. So we went over to their basement and watched it. But I remember her kind of like prepping me for it. Oh, wow. Because I, I was probably pretty young. Mm-hmm. Could be watching it with her. Like she probably had to clear it with our parents first. Like, <laughs> and mom's like, "Hell yeah, I love that movie." Yeah, she's like, "Oh, oh, well, that's a psychological thriller." That I'm not worried about it. It's just a thriller. No, I mean, that's just an education. That she'll just come out of that smarter. Well, it is fiction. Yeah, and so you went over to her place and watched it. Do you remember how it felt? Oh well, it felt like I was hanging with the big kids. So I bet, good. and you were. You were hanging with the big dogs all of a sudden watching this crazy movie yeah but it was like classic spooky home viewing lights out in the basement oh yeah has to be yeah and uh, never looked back it is yeah and it remains one of my favorite movies so should we um should we jump into the narrative you're yeah ready to go through it a little bit let's dive right in let's dive right in (laughs) i think uh a bit of a trope of our episodes is like, I think a lot of times once we apply like an analytical kind of eye or a critical eye to it, we recognize how much storytelling movie makers have to do mm. in mm-hmm. such a short amount of time. And I think the first few scenes of Silence of the Lambs, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. she's running on her own on the training ground at Quantico for the FBI. She's like jumping over the rope wall and running in her trainers and, her gray sweatshirt, just like Father Karras. Yeah. You know, and so the first impression of her is like, okay, she's a badass, we get it. Who do you think Who do you think runs faster, her or Father Karras? Father Karras, if I remember, he looked quite pained. I think he was just like a pained man, right? So he carried a lot of emotional weight through his shoulders. I think she could probably beat him in a foot race. She gets called to someone's office. What's his name again? The um... Crawford. And he's basically like the head of the behavior unit, right? Behavioral science unit. Be- behavior- no, sorry, sorry. Behavior behavior analysis unit, BAU. Right, right. And as she's going, you know, she's surrounded by men. She does give like her friend, who is a female in the hallway, a quick high five as she hustles by. But she's surrounded by men. And then she stands in that elevator and they're towering over her, kind of giving her looks and stuff. There's room for one more body in there and the rest are all males and she steps in and she's right in the mm-hmm. middle. So a lot of ideas coming across really quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely, like probably back in the days of DVDs, I probably rented or owned this DVD and I, I mm. swear I watched the special features probably a million times because every every time we discuss a new thing, I just like keep getting little factoids come up in my head about it. And, like, part of it was that that shot was obviously very intentional. Right. 
So she walks into Crawford's office and we see one of the classic scenes of like a corkboard covered in clippings and pictures and all this stuff, right? And and we see all yeah. the kind of skinned, gnarly bodies. Oh, yeah. And you know what I was... I was about to say, in this movie, and this that's an example of it, lots of good, like, set dressing as storytelling. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. So it jumps right, right into the main meat of the story so quick. There's not much establishing. It's just her running. Exactly. And then she's going through the FBI. And then as soon as she sits down with Crawford, he says what her assignment is to go talk to Dr. Lecter and have him, if she can, um, get him to do this questionnaire. While she's sitting there, she says, does this have anything to do with Buffalo Bill? And that's the main protag- uh, sorry, antagonist right there within the first couple minutes of the movie. You're kind of right into that story, which is really tight. So good. And they established that both Hannibal and Buffalo Bill are like infamous and everybody knows them already. Mm-hmm. They don't have to come out and say, oh, he's one of the most infamous no, that's you know, true. villains they just, in the world. Yeah, they just go right in. Yeah, I think that uh, another movie may have done a bit more of of that a lesser movie may have done a bit more of like oh have you heard about buffalo bill he's this guy who does this stuff but you kind of just pick it up through context or even like a still of him and then like computer sounds and writing coming across part of the screen that gives his dossier you know what i mean (laughs) there are so many ways to do something this is subtle but gets across all the information that we need which is awesome so they send her to the baltimore forensic hospital basically to try to give him a questionnaire that he's the last holdout for. And the more of the serial killers they can get to do these things, the more information they think they'll have to catch future killers, right? And that's a real thing that the FBI did, where they sent mm-hmm. like agents to go talk to imprisoned serial killers, like Ed Kemper and stuff like that. They right. really did that. Yeah. You know what's interesting about Ed Kemper? He was super chatty. He wanted to talk about what he did. Oh, yeah? hmm That's pretty creepy. And he was enormous. He was like six foot ten or something stupid. Oh, my God. Okay, how tall is Ed Kemper? Speaking of FBI, I'll <laughs> yeah, be on Yeah, let's, check, let's check our facts. They're like, dude, forget how tall he is. Do you know what he did? <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. That's not <laughs> the story he here. he killed people? Oh, my God. He gave it to me in fucking meters, as if I know what that means. <laughs> well, um, we are no, Canadian. Listen. He stands at a height of 6'9". So, That's there you go. tall. Dang. And most of his murders included necrophilia. So, oh, so two that. facts about him. <laughs> Jeez. Two truths and a lie. I'm six foot nine. <laughs> most of my murders <laughs> included necrophilia. And I'm a cat person. I was going to say that. I was just going to say I'm a cat person. So she does show up at the Baltimore Forensic Hospital. And she is meant to be briefed by basically the director of the hospital, Dr. Chilton. So what would you, how would you describe Dr. Chilton? Oh, like a creepy, <laughs> smarmy little worm. Yeah, with like greasy, slick back hair. He's a sex pest and all this stuff. And he, he kind of, he tries to hit on her immediately, which she's yeah. not the only one to do that. Oh, there's like sleaze, like dripping, <laughs> pouring out of his mouth. It's, every word is just dripping in sleaze that he says. Which, uh, kudos to the actor, well acted. I was just because- say. We should look up his name because he plays the part perfectly. I'm like, oh, get this guy off the fucking screen. Dr. Chilton. The actor is Anthony Held. Okay, so the actor's name is Anthony Held. So shout out to Anthony. Great performance in Silence of the Lambs as Dr. Chilton. Basically, 
in addition to trying to hit on her and that sort of thing, he does walk her down to the basement where they're holding Lecter. And he, like, makes a big show of showing her a picture of what Lecter did to a nurse when he was able mm-hmm. to get out of his restraints when he was having, like, an EKG. And he mm-hmm. tore this woman up and ate her tongue and all this stuff. And it's like, mm-hmm. we're talking psychological thriller here, not a horror for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then he shows, like, just to drive home his point, he shows Clarice yeah. a picture of it. As if hearing wasn't enough. He's got this Polaroid of, like, this wo- this woman's horrible injuries just, like, on his person, I guess. Yeah, his, his former co-worker. Yeah. He's like, oh, he was, like, told about the horrible thing. He's like, can I get a picture of that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, did you have a picture? Keeps it on him. To illustrate kind of how ice in his veins, cool cucumber. Yes. That Hannibal is, he told Clarice that while um, he sh- he was attacking the nurse in this way to result in these injuries, that his pulse never got above 85. So maybe you'll remember, John, I had kind of quizzed you on what the normal range of a pulse would be. And do you remember what it is? I remember guessing I was off by 10 and off by 10. So I think I said 70 to 110 or something like that. It, it's, six, it's 60 to 100. So that's right okay. smack in the middle is where Hannibal is, which is, yep. Just chilling. That would, wouldn't raise any eyebrows, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is such a cool thing to reference because they do set it up by saying he was down there for an EKG and that's how they knew what his heart rate was at. But it, it was so telling that, yeah, he did this awful thing and his heart didn't even quicken its pace. And that tells us so much about Lecter as a character, which is just, it's just such great information to drop in there. Yeah, again, just like tight storytelling gets the point across in a in a creepy, really like illustrative way. Yeah, and Dr. Chilton's almost like kind of reveling in it, I think. Oh, he wants to see Clarice squirm. Yeah. But she doesn't give him that satisfaction. She's pretty professional about it. And she goes up right on in with the help of Barney. Yes. Barney is one of the few people who's kind of like nice to her, welcoming to her, encouraging and that sort of thing. And he's respectful of Hannibal as well. Like, he just seems to be pretty good at his job. So she kind of comes around. She has to go past all the other inmates that are in the same hallway. Yep. A sad man. A very happy man. Happy, friendly seeming man. (laughs) And Miggs. And Miggs, who is a very um, erratic, confrontational man. And then when she gets around and you first see him, and he's just like standing there, like he's been waiting all day for her to come, like he's staring right out his windowed cell, his big glass wall. And he's all like, everything's tucked in, even though he's wearing a prison uniform, just like you had Mm -hmm. mentioned before. He looks very neat and tidy, not a hair out of place or anything. And I was going to say about the standing as well, is it also like you stand when a lady enters a room? So it's just like kind of another demonstration of his manners. And I think we'll probably get into it when we just stop to talk more about Dr. Lecter. But I think one of the things... Because sometimes it's hard for me to understand why me and lots of other people really love a character like him. Like, you just want him to be on screen more. And like... Mm. Oh, he's captivating. Yeah, exactly. One of the things is that he's just fascinating. He's so interesting. Like, how did this person end up like this? How does he think? Mm. Why does he do what he does? But then also, like, he, he has an appeal to him because he seems like a worldly, fancy, well traveled well-mannered man and you're like you know if it weren't for all that other stuff this guy's pretty legit damn yeah and i mean in the other movies like in 
in Red Dragon. Remember how it shows how he was that? He kind of was like the toast True. of the town. Like he had all these people over from like the symphony to his like beautiful home. Yes. He, uh, I think he basically was that. And, and now he is the same guy. He's just all in prison now. He had like a fancy old man ponytail. Yeah, he did have that in Red Dragon. <laughs> you know what it kind of reminds me of? Speaking of uncles. Our uncle. <laughs> our uncle. <laughs> and our uncle has very little in common with Dr. Hannibal Lecter. But one thing about it is he is, you know, that he's so smart and he has traveled the world and he's knowledgeable on a whole lot of topics. And are you just wait when you're talking to him, you're just waiting for him to say, you know what you look like with your nice bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. Yeah, he does make me feel like a rube sometimes unintentionally because I'm like, oh, damn, we're talking about a uh, subject right now that I don't feel well versed in, but I bet he knows a lot about. Yeah, exactly. So she does meet Lecter, and he looks super kind of put together, which is amazing given the situation that he's in. He's got really ornate, beautiful sketches that he's done, Mm -hmm. one of which is the book cover from Red Dragon, which is such a great image. He's also got like a really fancy drawing of what what European country is it? It was Italy. It's Florence. It is the uh, Duomo, as Mm -hmm. seen from the Belvedere. And I said that to you that a connection there is that part of the plot takes place in Belvedere, Ohio. So that's kind of interesting. Right. I think that he plays it in such a cool way because he could have gone a number of ways with the performance, I think. But he's got this like disarming, sinister voice, but it also goes well with hmm. it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's always off putting but it sometimes is really off-putting. It's almost like kind of unremarkable and you might hear anyone speak that way. Oh, do you think that you would hear anyone speak that way? Because I think he's so like measured and yeah, and like affected. Everything's got a little spin, a little style on it. You're probably right because there is a lot of performance in his voice, even like when she <laughs> he asks to see her credentials and he's like, close-up please. No, sir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, so, it's so good. Makes your skin crawl. And it, it's all interesting because Anthony Hopkins is British and this character is supposed to be from Baltimore. And so I feel like his accent is somewhere in between. So he's just a, like a little bit off it for everything. He's like a little bit too fancy for his prison cell. Yes. A little bit too British for a guy from Baltimore. Or like a little bit too put together for supposed to be a maniac more or less right who did mm-hmm. all these really wild things so his whole performance is a little bit disarming in just the yeah. perfect way for such a creepy scary guy and that's a little difficult to tease out too because a lot of times when he's talking to clarice starling he's like impersonating a very southern accent as well yeah sometimes so he's kind he of does. doing that to tease her right yeah and so as we said with the whole uh, you look like a rube thing yeah, he really, really cut her down, but she gives as good as she gets, pretty much. Yeah, he does a few really cool cold reads on her. He's able to tell kind of what perfume she often wears oh, and yeah. things like that. And and he does say, you know, you know what you look like to me, Agent Starling? You look like a rube. And it's like, damn. And that's exactly the image she's trying to avoid showing. But he Probably the worst thing. He tells her, you're no, you're no more than one generation away from white trash. Yeah. Cut her right to the quick, I'm sure. Really cut her down. And you're right. She gives as good as she gets. She says, he says, you think you're going to dissect me with that blunt little tool of the questionnaire she's got? And she's like, oh, well, 
you know, you're so smart and all this stuff. Are you brave enough to turn your analytic mind towards yourself? Yeah. So cool. The other part that I feel like the performance is so good on both parts, on hers and his, is when she's talking about serial killers keeping trophies of their crime. And he says, I didn't. And I feel like in that moment, he's trying to be like, I'm set apart. I'm different. And she goes, no, you ate yours. And it looks like his expression just looks like the wind got taken out of his sails a bit. Yeah. So at the end of that, the conclusion of this first meeting, he more or less dismisses her. Yeah, he's like, get the fuck out of here, basically. Yeah, I'm not going to engage with you on this tool. And that was supposed to be the whole reason that she was there. As she's walking out, Migs, his next door neighbor, basically in the hallway, does throw his ejaculate onto her and it like hits her in the hair, on the shoulders. Yeah, yeah, pretty revolting. And then Dr. Lecter, like, goes wild. He starts screaming. Yes. He's yes. like, Agent Stalling! Agent Stalling! And he's like, yeah. I wouldn't have had that happen to you, blah, blah, blah. And he tells her to look up one of his former patients, Hester Moffat, right? So do you think that it's a little bit of, um, that he was kind of, like, slow rolling her, that he always was going to tell her that anyway, because he wanted to engage with her about Buffalo Bill, and that's the only way to make it happen. But that he kind of, like... Just use that opportunity. Yeah. No, I, I think it's it's both ways because I think he definitely wanted to just draw out the interaction and he definitely didn't want to be absent from whatever was going on with the FBI and all this stuff. Like he wanted yeah. to find out what he could. He probably wanted to like lead them along a bit. And he was also really offended that someone like Miggs would do something like that because it's very uncivilized. He's all about manners. Yeah, which is such a funny juxtaposition, right? Yeah, he thinks a lot of himself, and yeah, to think that it, it matters that you're polite to people, but you can also eat them just doesn't, yeah, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, so it's almost like he says that, well, because Migs was so rude to you, I'm going to give you this very special clue. You know what I mean? Which is a, yeah. a funny, it's a funny transaction. Uh-huh. And she does, uh, she ends up leaving the hospital, like, immediately after, and she's walking to the car, and she starts to break down, so she was so tough in there, and then she mm-hmm. starts crying, and she sees a vision of her father, who was a police officer who died, basically breaks down when she gets to her car. Yeah, and, and I can tell you, even though she was she was in a healthcare setting, she's not a healthcare worker. Mm-hmm. I, I would be hard-pressed to find any healthcare worker who hasn't cried. For sure. Because of something that happened on the job. Because when you're dealing with other people, you use so much of yourself, like uh, therapeutic use of self and your own emotions and compassion are just a part of the job so it's emotionally exhausting period so i can tell you i've cried lots of times well sure and i think like obviously our vantage points are different but as a counselor obviously there's a lot of that too just like a lot of your Mm -hmm. interactions are emotionally exhausting they can be really trying really difficult for a bunch of different reasons you might be really upset by something that happened in a session and they build up too you know, you as a nurse work a 12-hour day. So mm-hmm. by the time maybe your shift is getting on and, and you're almost done, you've got even less resolve, less energy, things like that. And some of those issues might hit harder, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes you don't even know what's going to get you. Yeah, true. But if someone threw ejaculate on me, that would get me. I, I think I'd be taking a half day, I tell you. I was going to say, would you maybe go home? I, yeah, I would go home, certainly. I've never had it happen, but I don't think I'd be coming back after that. I'd probably shower for like an hour. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So disgusting. 
I mean, as a nurse, you end up with stuff on you all the time, but <laughs> that's a little something different. Not quite as much as a counselor. <laughs> oh, I thought that you meant that I don't get as much stuff on me as you do. I was like, oh, I hope <laughs> not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, nurses. Yeah, there is a lot of, you know, biohazard, but counselors, they're just dodging it all the time. Tears on you, maybe. Tears. <laughs> oh, the amount of times I've like ran to get someone a, a Kleenex box as I saw them well up. That is a very common experience, no doubt. So she follows up with Crawford and he basically gives her the go ahead to follow up on the clue, right? The, the yes. Hester Moffat. Hester Moffat, uh, look deep inside yourself, he said to her. And so then later when she is just, she's studying, she's doing her microfiche. Yeah, we love a microfiche scene, don't we? (laughs) We do. So as she's doing that, she gets a call from Crawford and he, I don't, I don't quite know what he was, what his angle was with this phone call. I think he's kind of a dubious character. I'm not a big fan. Right. He did kind Um, of lead her out like some bait, right? Yeah. He said, Miggs is dead and described to her how, which is apparently that he swallowed his own tongue after um after Hannibal Lecter talked to him all night long so in some way Hannibal's supposed to be responsible Miggs is dead he's the guy who assaulted her by throwing his ejaculate at her and so she very rightfully says I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this and I don't even know really why he said it and so she tells Crawford um, that she's done a little bit of thinking and a bit of digging since he gave her that clue and she Mm -hmm. realized that there's a yourself storage facility in Baltimore and that there is a unit in there that belongs to someone by the name of Moffat. So she put the pieces together and more or less gets the go ahead from him then to to go check it out. Right, exactly. And she eventually works out as well that it's an anagram for yes, Miss the yes. Rest of Me, <laughs> which yes. is poignant once you find out what's in there. <laughs> yeah. So she, she gets there uh, and it's raining out and there's a very, very wizened old man who is... <laughs> Um, helping her, but the door is stuck, so he's not much help there. And uh, she suggests maybe his driver should help. <laughs> yeah, his dedicated driver. He's got like a bowler cap and like a long pea coat. He's got a fi- like a like an accent that I don't necessarily recognize. And he's like this very fancy bougie owner of a storage, you know, storage place. <laughs> yeah. And so she does get the door open a little bit with like a car jack, uh, which yeah, is more then- like on-the-spot thinking and toughness. Yeah. And then she just, like, scoots underneath and makes a little joke about maybe getting, like, guillotined by it. Yeah, gets a bad <laughs> cut on an extremely rusty <laughs> garage door. Her, like, I'm like, damn, inner yikes. thigh, yeah. Oh, a lot yeah. of infection risk there. Yeah. And then, you know what? Maybe, maybe it makes sense that he is so fancy, this old guy, because how big was that storage unit? It was enormous. Oh, it was huge. It looked it, like a garage. It was so big that the car was just a, a small detail in the storage unit. Yeah, that's a big storage unit. Of course he's rich. Did you see how big his units are? <laughs> yeah. This guy's rich. Yeah, they must cost as much as a house. <laughs> so eventually she finds a severed head inside of a car. Mm-hmm. And it's like in alcohol or something like that. Like it's in a jar. Ugh, yeah, it's like pickled. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, a classic pickled head head gag. <laughs> and it's all done up in makeup as well, eh? Like, it's a male mm-hmm. head, but it's got some, like, kind of over-the-top makeup, big eyeshadow, big bright lipstick. Falsies, like false eyelashes that are, like, kind of falling off, if I remember. And then it's, like, a pretty quick cut after she unveils it. It's a pretty mm-hmm. quick cut to she is back at Hannibal's cell. 
to talk to him about it. Yes. He's basically like, you know, I didn't kill that guy, but he was a patient of mine and he was a garden variety manic depressive. Yeah. And I mean, as if that's a normal thing, I didn't kill him. I just oh yeah, put his head in a jar and put it in my storage unit. Yeah. Like anyone would have done. Yes. And so, and so as we said, he is talking about this, the deceased, the departed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he says that that person was a patient of his. He, he knows his partner killed him. His romantic partner killed him. Yeah, I believe he does. Right. And he said, but he says that the the deceased patient was a garden variety manic depressive. Very tedious. Very tedious, which John and I had discussed. The term manic depressive is actually outdated. Uh, it's not used anymore. What disorders he is like referring to would probably be either bipolar one or bipolar two um, disorders. And the reason that, that those are probably what he's referring to is because they're characterized by manic and depressive states or hypomanic, which is just a little bit less extreme than a manic episode. So that's why I know what he's referring to. But yeah, that term isn't used anymore. And when we discussed it, having watched it, the reason that he would describe it as tedious and that him, he's mm. kind of above it, I think it's just because he wants like the most interesting, extreme, exotic, exotic kind of cases and bipolar disorder is very common. Like yeah. a lot of a lot of mood disorders are pretty common and we see them a lot and bipolar is definitely one of them. So probably just with his ego, Lecter more or less thinks that he's a, above above actually helping a person with a common disorder. So yeah, bipolar disorder, you know, is by its nature a very cyclical disorder where you're entering and leaving phases of mania or hypomania and a depressive state, right? And so I can see why this arrogant character of Dr. Lecter might find that tedious and boring or something like that. And like you said, it is a common mood disorder. So do you think there would be any shot at all that Dr. Lecter could be like an effective psychiatrist? No, because I don't think that he is empathetic. Exactly. He he literally lacks empathy. Like that's part of his prognosis. So I don't think that you can be an effective doctor, period. Right without empathy, with the exception of maybe like a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, someone who doesn't need to be around someone when they're awake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I agree. I think although he's obviously very smart, he would probably have really good knowledge of, say, the DSM and the different diagnoses that apply and how psychiatric medication might interact with those. Oh yeah, he's probably got like an encyclopedic knowledge of yes. all the different nomenclature, terminology, you know, and all the different uh, sources of illness and how the treatments work and all that. But if you don't care for what a patient is telling you, then no, I don't think that you can be an effective doctor. Well, and not just that, but he seems to have almost disdain for his patients. Oh, he's got contempt for them, I think. He looks down on them for being ill almost, right? Yeah, I think he's got contempt for them. And he's only uh, in it if he finds them interesting or unique for some reason. And what Mm -hmm. that would probably amount to in like in a doctor would just be like reveling in the worst things happening to your patients. Right. Because a a more complex case might be a case that has like lots of trauma or, you know, really like unique or terrible symptoms. So that's inherently like a bad doctor who's like, oh, yeah, let me have the sickest like most needy person and just revel in the crappy stuff that has happened to them or is going on with them. 
Well, and I think that really does apply to him because in this meeting with Clarice Starling again, he's like really after the case file. He's like, well, that would be in the case file. You could get that for me, right, Mm -hmm. about Buffalo Bill. And I was wondering, like, my take on that is basically that he's almost living vicariously, but also that he's an emotional and like a psychological Mm. kind of vampire where he really gets boosted by hearing about people's pain and all this kind of stuff. And in fact, there is a line in the book. Oh, is there? At one point. Yeah. And I found it really interesting because we don't get in the movie and it said something about, I think he was tormenting Clarice, basically. And he said he drank of her pain and it was exquisite. And then he moved on with his next question. Right. So he was having Mm -hmm. her recount some stuff about her past that was Mm -hmm. painful for her. And he really felt good about hearing it. So I think Mm -hmm. that that is right, that he basically is like vampiric about this stuff. And like you said, he would want the most ill or tormented or downtrodden people and just like listen to them recount what had happened to them and kind of get his jollies off, which is just like such a sick notion. Yeah. And also his his ego wanting the case file because he wants to be part of it. He wants to insert himself mm. because he's all locked up. So all he can do is do it intellectually and just be, be part of it. Yeah. So in conclusion, I do not think he would be an effective <laughs> psychiatrist. But Okay. Well, everybody's different. He's in, not endorsed by our podcast personally as a doctor. <laughs> no. He's got like a zero star rating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So during this conversation, he, he is courteous, though. He gives a towel to yes. Clarice because she's all wet from the rain. Yeah. And um, this is an interesting conversation as well because of just how frank Clarice is, even with things that are maybe a little bit unsavory. Like when he asks her how she felt when she found um, the head of this person. Mm-hmm. Yep. She says, scared at first and then exhilarated, like without any kind of hint of shame or hesitation to say that it exhilarated her to find that. Right. But I think that where she differs from from Lecter is that she's not just exhilarated by the gore or by the shock factor or creepiness of it. She's exhilarated because it's a step closer to catching a bad guy. Good point. I think that you're right about that. And then also when we're talking just about basic physiology, the difference between being 10 out of 10 scared and 10 out of 10 excited, like according to Mm. your body, they're very, very similar. Oh, absolutely. Right. So like, even if I was terrified, I could still call myself exhilarated, right? My heart's beating like crazy. My body is physically excited. Which is a reason that that we like horror movies, right? Exactly. And that's why sometimes horror and comedy can be happy bedfellows Mm -hmm. for that reason. Like with Get Out, as an example, you know, it's scared, scared, tense. And how do you relieve that tension with a scream or with a laugh, right? It's it's one or the other. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It's it, it does things to me that drama and action movies don't like I'm never pumping my fists in excitement in an action movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I cry sometimes, but very rarely in a drama movie, but an effective horror movie like I'm scared shitless and there's nothing I can do about it. So in this scene where he's talking to her again, I thought it was cool because basically, is this where he starts the quid pro quo stuff? I think so, yeah. And he, do you know what's interesting is that so much of the time that he's having this conversation with her, he's looking away from her. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I don't know why that is. Anthony Hopkins' performance is just really, really cool. Oh, awesome. I'm curious how much of it is his own ideas and how much of it is direction from the director, but just so cool. And yeah, don't know why he's doing that, but 
It's different. It's unique. It's memorable. Yeah. And um, interestingly, I saw just a very small snippet of an interview with him and someone was asking, did you research like real serial killers and stuff? And he's like, oh, no, 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 too distasteful, too distasteful. I wouldn't do that. And like, so he studied probably the book and the source material, but wasn't going to go down that rabbit hole of studying real killers and stuff. What a what a very polite British response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I really like Anthony Hopkins. He seems, he like seems great. And I was wondering, like, he wants to know about her past and he's willing to basically trade information for her to tell him about her the worst moments of her life basically which is the yeah. quid pro quo arrangement and, and the emotional vampire quality that you described as well because he just wants to he wants to see her squirm he wants to make her uncomfortable and it's yeah. like something it's entertainment for him because he's stuck in a cell by himself so it's something to do where he can get the power back yeah and so in one way he's got her on the ropes because he's making her go through this painful process but he has a very simple desire, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like his pathology is betraying his super quick wit. And, you know, he's always in control, but he's so desperate to hear yeah. from her about these terrible moments that she also has like plenty of breadcrumbs, right? Yes. Yeah, she does. It it definitely is draining to her, but she's got them to give and she has a goal in mind to get this information from him to help. So, yeah. He begins to ask her if she thinks that Crawford could maybe have sexual feelings for her and if she could have sexual feelings for him too and i think it's so good on starlight's part because she's like well frankly doctor that doesn't interest me and it's something that migs might say yeah right and so as good as that is because it's like oh what a burn on lecter because he thinks he's nothing like migs whatsoever he's like not anymore yeah oh god well good comeback that's very creepy <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think they do some really cool stuff with the lighting in his cell. I think weren't the lights off at that point? And then they turn him on. Yeah, he was kind of in the dark and then they kicked him on and he says, oh, thank you, Barney. Right? Because he was being punished for Migs, which would be considered torture. Oh, yeah. Or or he also said like, well, they're going to j- crank up the volume on that TV as soon as you leave. And it was some like evangelizing kind of pastor. And that's like, that's like recognized as as torture um mm. what like playing loud music or like loud sounds to like yeah. mess mess with your sleep and stuff like that yeah so so as we said dr chilton not a good doctor also not a good doctor no way he's effective because he is just repulsive and like is so nasty and literally torturing his patient not to mention he establishes the fact and he's forthright about it he says uh eh, i think that dr lecter considers me to be his worst enemy And so in terms of a therapeutic relationship, like not even once. Yeah, if you've recognized that, then (laughs) it's past time to reassign that patient. I would say so too. Like, (laughs) yes, counseling can get contentious, no question. You know, if one of your patients considers you to be their worst enemy and you likewise, probably time to take a step back. And I tell you, I would bow out of caring for that patient. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you'd be like, hey, no problem, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not going to be effective for either one of us not going to be a good day and one thing about the way that anthony hopkins plays it too like his eyes are really big Mm -hmm. in addition to his creepy voice he's just got like these kind of piercing eyes he doesn't get ruffled so he's always chill he's always cool as a cucumber and except for yeah that was a little odd and that kind of took me by surprise but do you think it was kind of put on too I think so. I think it has to be. Me too. Clarice already has the impression, which is really keen of her, 
that he knows who Buffalo Bill is. Mm-hmm. And so she thinks it would be advantageous to get him the file. So, you know, she's willing to kind of entertain that idea and bring it to Crawford, right? And and so when we watched it previously, we kind of discussed it and thought that he more or less has a really good hunch of who he is, of who the killer is, but he does want the case file to confirm it for himself and to get more details, right? Yeah, and I thought that was I thought that was kind of funny to be honest because I didn't remember that. And my thinking was, oh, well, you know, in, in that movie, Dr. Lecter basically does what the BAU does, mm. came up with a perfect profile and was able to narrow down who it was. But actually, he literally knew he had like met him before. Yeah. Right. And was able to tell, yeah, there's something up with this guy. And then, like you said, wanted to confirm his hunch. And then he basically retcons everything else. He's mm-hmm. like, well, he'd be like this and he'd be like that. But he just met him. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he kind of cheated a little bit. Yeah. He'd be like, well, I mean, based on my profile, he'd be about 180 pounds. Is that right? Oh, my God. Based on my profile, he's got a birthmark to the left of his, you know. And they're like, nope, no birthmark. And he's like, check the hairline, check the hairline. It's there, damn it. <laughs> yeah, he's got a 666. And, and Crawford's like, I've bathed him. <laughs> I know every inch of him. I bathed, I've bathed the suspect. I know every inch of him. <laughs> That's an omen reference for anyone who hasn't been through our full catalog. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. And so then this is a shorter conversation, right? They're way shorter, I think. Yeah. And then where does it take us to next after they part ways again? Oh, such a sad juxtaposition. We see the next victim singing in her car with American Girl playing by Tom Petty. And when you and I were watching, we said like, even in 10 seconds or less of screen time, like in the car, I'm so charmed by her right away. Oh. I know she's, she's like, so likable. She's so she's bopping along it and like she's really singing. I don't know. I found instantly I was on her team. I found her relatable yes. and likable right away. So this movie's just it must be the a combination, right? Of like the direction, the the editing, mm. the acting, but it it works out so I'm like, yeah, I'm in it. I like her. I'm I'm invested in her safety. Yes. And then she meets who we will later find out is Buffalo Bill. But there's this guy who's got his arm in a cast trying to get a big piece of furniture into the back of his van and making a big show of it, too, really grunting and dropping it. So she takes notice and goes to help. Yep. And we know as well that that is a little bit of stole uh, grabbed from the headlines, uh, taken from real life kind of thing, because that is a tactic that Ted Bundy used. Yeah, he definitely Ted Bundy'd her for sure. Like Ted Bundy would apparently act injured and have people try to help him right beside his car. And that that was intentional, like... Yeah, and they do reference it in the book. Yes. And then he had her get back up into the car or the van, which I think that true crime heads would be like, no fucking way, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Well, I think that taps into something very primal. And it doesn't apply to everyone in the same way. But do you remember in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? I was going to say, when he says you're more afraid of being impolite than you are of being killed. Yeah. Yeah, so spoilers, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen that movie, which Jenna and I also love. But the serial killer says, you had a bad feeling when I asked you to come in here, so why did you come? Mm-hmm. And like he's about to kill Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you could have just been impolite and left and you'd be safe right now basically right but it does tap into something where like even if you're getting an ick factor or you're you're scared you're like well 
you have something ingrained that you wouldn't want to offend somebody, especially some guy who's hurt, trying desperately to get his furniture into his van and you just leave him there to do it himself. As much as some people would be like, fuck this, I'm out of here. Others would be susceptible to that trick. I'm one of them. I'm a big people pleaser. Right, exactly, right? So am I. I would be deep in that van and later dead. Yeah. (laughs) Well... Yeah, you'd be you'd be the skin suit, right? But, you know, he'd probably go for me because my skin suit would be a little roomier. <laughs> Roomy? Yeah, you're uh-huh. a size 14, aren't you? Yeah, and then uh, it, it, that's so unsettling when, like, she's conscious and doesn't quite know how bad it's going to go yet. But as soon as she's in the car, he's like, are you about a size 14? And that's obviously such a weird And she goes, what? And he uses his cast, which that's a me move. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He uses his cast to hit her in the head and knock her out. When I was two, I broke my arm. Yeah, had my arm in a cast. And I did use it as a weapon against my cousins and siblings. And mom recounts the story that you were talking to the doctor. You were just a little kid. And you said, well, is it going to hurt if I bang it against something? And he's like, well, no, no, no. Like the cast is there to protect your arm, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, is it going to hurt other people if I bang them? With it? And he's like, yep. <laughs> And I'm like, and oh, then perfect. Off you were to the races. <laughs> and then uh, he snips up the back of her shirt just to kind of yeah. like look at her skin. And oh, he's like, oh, good, good. His creepy, terrible voice. Oh, God. And that's, I think, like another amazing performance. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh. And one thing I thought was cool about that, like their introduction of Catherine, that's her name, right? Yeah, Catherine Martin. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the movie's introduction of Catherine, I thought, was really good because, again, it, it establishes so many things so quickly. But it's also um, American Girl by Tom Petty mm-hmm. is playing. And so that was a very, like, um, autobiographical song for them to play because she's supposed to be, like, kind of a girl An next door. You know relatable. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, relatable and, like, in every kind of woman, but not, a, not like, but a young adult, mm-hmm. you know? But I did think... Because the first time we actually see Buffalo Bill is in her parking lot and we first see him, his eyes through his goggles, his night vision goggles. Yes. And it's a scary shot. But then I thought when they introduce him in full for the first time, it's almost like very unceremonious. Mm. Like there's not like a big dong sound and like (laughs) a, a creepy reveal or anything. He's just like lugging that chair around, complaining about it. And then she's, she's helping him. So like, and because maybe we're supposed to see him the way that she saw him in that first moment, which is, yeah, just a guy trying to put something in a chair, uh, <laughs> and, trying to put a chair uh, in a van. You know, and he did look unassuming, no question. Do you, th- do you think that you, well, you're a man, so maybe it's a little bit different, but do you think that you would go and feel comfortable helping a stranger in that way? I think so. I think I would feel like quite compelled to help him. I yeah. might consider the fact that it was kind of a weird situation. It was late at night. Or what if he asked like you that. to go in the in the van? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I think I'd be put off by that. I would probably prefer that he step into the van and I push from the outside. <laughs> but that being said, I, I think I could be a sucker for the mm-hmm. uh, approach of, oh, I need help. Right? I think you're. I think you're a sucker. I think that you would do it. Like I see old ladies fall down and stuff, and you know how hard it is for me to not go help them up. But you got to stay safe. I'm like, not today, sucker. Yeah. You're not getting me. Yeah. They're like, ooh, 
could you help me across the road? You're like, oh, no, I <laughs> gotta look out for number one. Nice try, pervert. Yeah. <laughs> I think soon after, like, she gets abducted. He throws her shirt right onto the ground, and apparently that's kind of his thing. He always yes. cuts the shirt off right away and kind of inspects the skin and yeah. leaves it at the scene. Like, lucky for the investigators that he has such an obvious calling card. True, because, like, otherwise they might not have any idea what happened to her. No one would know where Catherine Martin was, no. Crawford, after that, basically gets a hold of her and lets her know that there was a floater, a body, um, that they're going to go visit, and then they go on the plane ride together. Is that when they're, like, absolutely shoulder to shoulder in this, yes. like, tin can yeah. of a plane? Yeah, they're in a sardine can with wings, and then they get to the funeral home, which we had mentioned when we watched it. We're like, is it a little bit weird that they're looking at this body in a funeral home? But then we thought that maybe in a small town, there might not be like a morgue. Right. Right. It, it might That's just be true. the place that you put, you know, a body to store them appropriately is a funeral home. It might just be the, the most appropriate facility for that. But it is kind of, it does play into a bit of an odd scene where she's able to walk right into an actual funeral. Right. That was, like, her own dad's funeral, it, it ends up being. So I think it's supposed to be a little bit of a fantasy sequence. Like, maybe there isn't a funeral happening at the same time, but there is a funeral home. Yeah, or there might be. And, like, I think that maybe she's, like, looking at the funeral, and then it brings her back to, in her head, right. to her own dad's funeral. But the reason that she's alone when she kind of has that vision is because... Crawford just, like, undermined her really badly where he is talking to the police and they're giving him a little bit of attitude because he's the FBI and they're like, well, we didn't call you in. And so I think that he's kind of trying to, like, buddy up to that cop by, like, getting a little bit more, like, intimate, like, saying, like, oh, let's go talk about this in private. But he does it in a way that, um, yeah, really should sting Clarice because he says, like, Mm -hmm. I would sooner talk about the intimate parts of this crime in private which is yeah. just utterly ridiculous. Like, she's... Given the point that they're at. Well, yeah, she's an FBI agent who's about to go look at this woman's body, but don't talk about certain parts of the crime in front of her. Like, it's just so silly and um, just really unfair to Clarice and all these... There are so many, so many cops. It must be every cop in this town is in that room. Right. And they're all kind of staring at her. And they're all, like, chewing gum and shit and staring down at her and all that stuff. And then she has to kind of toughen up and and dismiss them all too yes and then so then moments later they go into uh the room where um frederica's body actually is and clarice like astutely recognizes that there are way too many fucking people in that room and goes yeah like excuse me gentlemen and more or less says thank you for helping but you gotta leave so that we can continue to take care of her and it's actually something in uh in healthcare. Uh, that you deal with, right, is people's private information. Mm-hmm. And there definitely are situations where people are, like, healthcare workers are curious about other people's patients and this, that, and the other, or if someone's got a really interesting case that they're working on. But like all those cops in that room, you don't need to be there. And if you don't need to know that information to provide care, you shouldn't know it. And yeah, so that, that that's just a part of, like, um, responsible um, provision of healthcare is like it's a natural inclination to be like, oh, this this person's caring for a patient with you know this really unique uh, circumstances going on, and it's like it's natural to feel curious about it. But a responsible healthcare provider is going to recognize that unless I'm caring for that person, 
I don't need to fucking know about it. And it's uh, to protect that person, right? Like, if you don't need to know that information to provide um, care, then you should respect their privacy. For sure. And she, she's, yeah, so she does have to try to get all these men out of the room. And she's like, says something about them doing a good job caring for her up to this point, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And then I think she like, handled it really professionally. And she's like, go on now. But like, there shouldn't be a, you know, a party atmosphere and a bunch of people in front yeah. of a woman's naked corpse. Like, <laughs> you know, just obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I thought it was, it was cool because... Crawford kind of diminishes her skills a bit or implies Mm -hmm. something kind of dismissive in the way Crawford handled things. But then she's the one who has to try to kick all these male cops out of there. And then she kind of moves forward with photographing the body, right? I think they're more or less like collecting evidence from her body. Right. And so she's the one kind of taking charge with the camera and taking notes as well. She's dictating notes. I think she makes some really good inferences as well because she probably hasn't done that too many times but in the book they reference like she's got some above and beyond kind of forensic training okay but she's able to tell a few things including that the woman had tried to claw through something and then she notices something in the throat as well yes she sees something in the throat which would be because they took a picture down her mouth kind of thing and as she's pulling it out one of the spectators who i don't even know who he's supposed to be and this guy goes, that's a bug cocoon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in his very, you know, small town way. He's like, that's a bug cocoon. Very astute, for it is a bug cocoon. <laughs> he was quite, yeah, he was quite right. And that same guy, when they reveal the body out of this body bag, he has like a Broadway level flourish. Like he like whips it open like a Dracula's cape or something like that. Do you that. know what I thought that was? The way that he whips it open so fast was like trying to get it over with because of the smell. He's kind of scared almost. It was what I saw it as like, Ugh, yeah. That's probably true. And he probably Ooh. didn't want to be that close to it. And they all are kind of disgusted, although they mm. all show it to, di- to varying degrees. And probably the most important piece of evidence besides the um, cocoon is the fact that she's got two wounds in the shape of like big diamonds along her back. Right. Where the skin is gone. Yes. And that becomes really important later. They move forward with it and then they're in the car. Yeah. uh, On the way back. And so uh, Clarice again shows kind of her self-assuredness and gumption and she confronts Crawford there about his behavior around all the cops. Yes. And about how inappropriate it was and how it makes her look and that mm-hmm. it does matter. Even though he kind of seems to try to brush it off and consider it to be a little thing, she repeats, like, it matters. They look to you for how to act. Yeah, and I thought that was so brave to do because you could picture, Very. like, he holds the keys to some of the things that she would like, which is to you know, progress well in her career. She's very interested in the work he's doing. And he's kind of like a rock star yeah. in terms of how he does it. He's, he's like infamous for it. And she still stands up and says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Like, that's pretty good. He's the boss and she's a student. She's not even a full fledged FBI agent. Huge power dynamic, you know, differences there. But she's like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And he takes it well. He too. definitely does. Right. Because he starts to say, oh, you know, I, you understand, Starling, like I had to do that. And she was like, well, no. And now, you know, people think it's OK to do that to me because I'm a woman or who knows what. Eh? And then where do we wind up after the car ride? So he sends her to follow up on the bug cocoon. 
And she oh, does yeah. find herself at the museum, the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. and she meets some very odd kind of characters who are playing bug chess. Oh, he, well, yeah, doesn't everybody? <laughs> what, what should she have expected to have found? Are the... Are some of the chess pieces bugs, or are there bugs corresponding to each chess piece, or do the bugs move the chess pieces? In the book, you know how when you're playing chess professionally? <laughs> no, I like, don't know. Well, yeah, you remember. <laughs> yeah, from my days as a professional chess player. In between your fencing, you play chess, no? <laughs> when people are playing chess, like, in some professional way, it might not always be the way, they have to, like, slap a timer. Yes. And it like passes the turn back and forth. Yes. So in the book, I believe if once the bug makes it across the board, your turn is done. Ah. So it's like that they were doing some weird bug chess in the book also. Yeah. Like how the hell, what if the bug just flew away? <laughs> like, or what if it went off the other way? Then it's a sudden death match. Uh, I don't know how to play chess. Oh, wow. Really? She, she like is on a level above them, right? And it kind of looks down. And it's kind of like a crash zoom on the bug doctor who happens to be cross-eyed. Yeah, not, not, hashtag not all bug doctors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think there's meant to be kind of some humor there? Because there's not much humor in this movie. I don't think it's supposed to be necessarily funny, but this director, as we said, he likes to use a lot of character actors. Right. So everyone's got something kind of weird, right? Like Yeah, some, some kind of memorable little detail. Yeah, like him with his cross eyes, the um, cop later who has the gigantic, the widest mustache known to man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit goofy. Socially awkward. Hitting on her. Yes, even the bug doctor hits on her. No, that's what I mean. She gets passes made at her by countless kind of people in this movie that she comes across. But she's pretty receptive to the bug doctor's pass at her. (laughs) She She doesn't shoot him down, that's for sure. No, I think she's receptive. I think they're dating at the end. Wow, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I, it's like, that would that would not track with me. Okay, I'm, does Clarice date yeah, the bug doctor? Yeah, please look that up. Does Clarice date the entomologist? Okay, the very ending line of the book wherein Clarice, secure and dating the entomologist, is sleeping happily in the silence wow. of the lambs. Yes! Wow. The, the less sexy bug doctor, the guy doing the real work, Tells us that the uh, the caterpillar is a death's head moth, which is not native to America, which is a really important clue because it means that someone had to import and then raise it, which, I mean, this day and age, I think that that would be like the death knell for that killer because I have to imagine you'd order it online, right? Like you'd be able to track that and there's probably not that many people doing it. Probably not. Probably only, like, one out of 50 people is growing their own moths to release them in their home. Yeah, like, I only know four or five people who grow moths. Yeah, so I think we're probably right about that. So, yeah, it narrows it down to, like, who knows? One in 50, as we said. Exactly. Yeah, he said someone had to keep him warm, take care of him. He's like, somebody loved him. Yeah. I didn't know if that was supposed to be, like, a poignant line. Well, yeah. Yeah. It made me made me wonder if they were kind of referencing Buffalo Bill in a in a kind of covert way because Hannibal Lecter's kind of known this whole time that there was this guy who was murdering people and all this stuff and it's almost like he he let it play out to see what would happen. Yeah, I think that um, the way that you described it when we watched it, saying that basically Buffalo Bill winding up the way he is wasn't uh, just by chance. It was um, 
because of all the abuse that he had uh, underwent and all of his life experiences that created him. It didn't just happen. Much like that bug cocoon didn't just wind up in her mouth. It was by right. a lot of events had to happen for that to uh, be the case. So I felt like that was a good take for sure. Yeah, because he does eventually reference like, you know, this is a person who was made the way that they were partially through systematic abuse. Mm-hmm. He he says that later when he's describing the profile, right? So do you want to talk here about the concept of nature versus nurture? Mm-hmm. And so if someone were to uh, bring that up to you about Buffalo Bill, say nature or nurture, what would you say? How would you uh, answer that? Well, the good thing is it is a very simple answer, which is like, it's always both, yeah. right? There's just no teasing out the two from each other. Like, it, No, it's, it's, far, um, it's way too simplistic when people try yeah. to uh, split it up like that. Too many variables. Yeah, it, it's never just one thing. And one affects the other, too. Like, when people talk yeah. about nature, I think a lot of the time they're imagining um, that you've got a certain set of genes and traits that were in you from the time you were born and are going to be in you until the day that you die. But even those things are changeable. Like we've talked about before about um, traumatic brain injury and how that can change what we often think of as fundamental to a person, like someone's patterns of thinking and behavior. And we also know that there's a concept called epigenetics, wherein the things that you experience in your life from your environment affect the way your genes are expressed yeah that we might have like you and i could have genes that never get turned on yeah 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 or vice versa they do get switched on but it might not have had to have happened Mm -hmm. you know i mean like the body's just so interesting and although it doesn't seem like it when we're talking about a personality disorder when we're talking about a mood disorder when we're talking about people's behavior it doesn't necessarily seem like it, but it has everything to do with the brain and the body as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not simply that we're like a floating head in a jar, like things that happen to us kind of imprint and, and have everything to do with how we turn out later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So yeah, it's always both. And that would be the case with anybody in this movie, including the ones who act out in, in really terrible ways. Again, this movie is grounded in the world of reality anyway. Yeah, certainly. In in the Michael Myers franchise, for example, the doctor keeps saying that he's pure evil, right? Exactly. But but that's a different universe where that concept exists, right? And your doctor can diagnose you as pure evil. Yeah. But this one is very much like it's fiction, but it's meant to be taken in a way that it's plausible, although some, some points are fantastical, right? Mm-hmm. And so once we leave the Smithsonian. So that's where we get into the senator stuff. Yeah, who we, we thought that even though she doesn't have much screen time, she's pretty cool. Totally. And, and so, yeah, Catherine Martin is a senator's daughter. And interestingly enough, and I don't know how common this would be in the early 90s, but, you know, she's a, a female senator. And so much of this movie taps into like female victimization, right? Because you have murdered girls... You have Clarice Starling as the main character. And then you also have the mother of one of the abducted girls is a really powerful woman. But, you know, all of a sudden she's in this terrible situation. There are currently 25 women in the Senate. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this movie passes the Bechdel test 
And I thought for a moment, and it does. A woman talks to a woman and not about a man? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I would say so because I guess... Oh, you know what? I was thinking this exact same thing. So tell me the example you think might make it pass. So I was thinking Ardelia and Clarice talk about Buffalo Bill. So they are talking about a man, but they also talk about the victims. So they're also talking about Frederica. Um, you know what? She... You know what? Sorry, oh, go ahead. Are you thinking when she talks to the uh, to the friend with the bad haircut in the bar about Frederica? No, even worse. I was thinking about when she talks to Catherine Martin in the well. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yep, pass. A lot of our listeners probably know, but I'm Ugh. pretty sure, I'm going from memory here, but I'm pretty sure that the tenets, tenets of the Bechtel test are that there is more than one woman in the movie with a name. Check. Mm-hmm. That at some point in the movie, they talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And that they talk about something besides a man. <laughs> Yeah, like dead women. <laughs> and even even some, yeah. Oh, man. Not really in some, the spirit of the Bechdel test. Some movies that you think would are, are feminist or have great um, feminist or female characters, mm-hmm. don't pass it. So the senator is talking on TV and she's saying, you have the power. You're in charge. She keeps saying Catherine, 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 mm-hmm. right? And so I think she's doing two things there and they do say so. Number one, she's appealing to him in that she's she's maybe making him feel powerful. Oh, yeah. She's she's like building him up big time. She's like, you're powerful. You can you yes. can be merciful. You can be kinder to her than the world has been to you, basically. Right. That's true. So she's also being like empathetic. Yes. And the empathy part is why she's saying her name so much in that mm-hmm. she's trying to have Buffalo Bill look at Catherine as a person rather than an object or a means to an end or something like that. And later we can see that um, Buffalo Bill is susceptible to that. Yes. He's trying to negate that, right? Yeah. Uh, Clarice and her friend um, Ardelia do point out that it is pretty clever of uh, the senator to be doing that. Yeah, exactly. And I know that that's a real thing. Like, I know that yeah. that's something that the FBI or, or someone really would do. She goes back to visit Lecter again, and Dr. Chilton's raising a big stink because he's basically like, well, you keep coming here and talking to him, but you're not telling me anything about it. And it's like, well, why would I? Like, get the hell out of here, Dr. Chilton. He just he just wants to have his fingers in it because he wants to be important. He wants to be one of the... Uh, remember Damien Karras's uncle who said that he should be a famous <laughs> psychiatrist? That's what Dr. Chilton wants to become. Yeah. He just wants to have his finger in the pie of what's going on with Lecter. I think he wants to write an article about it and all of this stuff, right? So he's, like, very much trying to be in there as much as he can she basically says hey take it up with the da yeah and and very no nonsense she shuts him down right away which was wonderful and i think he was like steaming oh he's fuming for sure she's just like nope fuck you well he and then he pretty much starts a plan to get back at her after that because she goes down to talk to Lecter, and he's got a listening device yeah. Oh, you know what I was thinking? Mm-hmm. You know what that made me think of? Remember those commercials for that listening device? Yeah. Yeah. The like the uh, it audio enhancers. And it's like a man wearing it at the gym. And it's like yeah. someone being like, oh, you're that man over there. Is so handsome. It's like, I bet you that's not what most people are, are picking up. But also you're walking around with a listening device at the gym instead of your music. And that would be so awful. You'd just be getting a lot of like, oh. Clink, clank, clink, clank. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and those clinks and clanks would be so loud if you amplify oh, them. 
<laughs> All just to hopefully hear some girls hitting on you at the gym. Yeah, and uh, you're at the gym. There's probably lots of muscly guys to hit on. You might not be the only one. No, I'm the strongest one, but not everybody knows oh, right. that. Not everyone realizes how strong you are. So detail for us and for our audience the offer that she makes Lecter. Because Crawford has basically said, okay, let's move forward with an offer for Lecter to try to get him to help us with, with Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. So what what does she offer him at that point? She offers him uh, the opportunity to be moved to a different facility, which is on an island and would allow him these like special perks, which he had asked for. Um, he wanted a window. He wanted to see birds mm-hmm. and maybe see the water. And so she's giving him that and then some saying there's this place that you can even swim in the water um, under like supervision and all these things, all these things, which no one would, would ever hope to get being (laughs) lifetime in prison. So it's a pretty sweet deal for Lecter. Um, But yeah, uh, John and I had mentioned just like what an absolute tragic waste of resources that would be. (laughs) And so what do you think uh, Lecter thought of that offer? One of my favorite parts is when he picks it up and immediately he's like, oh, the Plum Island Animal Disease Research Center. (laughs) And she's like, well, that's not the whole island. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I thought that was so good. He's like, ew, gross. But I also think that he's putting on a bit of a show because he just wants the information. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, he didn't care at that point all too much about a move. No, I I agree. I think that he, he wants the info. He had to have something to suggest, right? Oh, yeah. And he wa- he wants to play hard to get, more or less, I think. Because he-, he always wants to have the power in any given situation. Like when he dismisses her and then calls her back yes. and Miggs does the thing. Yeah. And then this is where he really leans into the I tell you things, you tell me things mm-hmm. part. And he has her detail, you know, being orphaned at 10, going to the ranch or the farm mm-hmm. to live. You know, she's willing to do it, right? Uh, yeah, and again, that's like her ambition to to get this crime solved. She's willing to give of herself to to make it happen. And this is where we um, get the meaning of the title. Because as she's describing, briefly living at this sheep and horse ranch, she says that she wakes in the night at one point to screaming and realizes that it's the lambs going to slaughter. And so she tries to rescue one, picks one up and starts running with it. But eventually gets slowed down, can't can't go on, and that the rancher that she lived with was so furious that she didn't live with them after that. And then Lecter quite cruelly asks her what happened to the lamb that she had run with, and the lamb had been killed. And so I, the I, the idea is supposed to be that she's still kind of haunted by by victims. And mm-hmm. in her childhood, it was the lambs. And in her adulthood, she's an FBI agent. So it's all different kinds of victims. And right now, it's the victims of Buffalo Bill. And in order to make that screaming stop in her head, in her heart, whatever you want to say, she's got to help the people that she can now. Yeah, and then he kind of kind of turns the knife on that. He's like, do you really think that if you stop Buffalo Bill... You know, you won't be hearing any more screaming of the lambs at night. And he surmises that she has nightmares. She says, you know, yes, I do. And like you said, he kind of cruelly says, oh, and what happened to that lamb anyway, after all your efforts, knowing likely that it probably still got killed. Mm-hmm. And then she is good, though. Like, she doesn't cry or anything, but it's obviously emotional for her to talk about. I think she's she's holding back tears kind of thing. 
Right. I think she's got a hitch in her voice. And she's speaking like softly and slowly and mm-hmm. like clearly remembering it, not just kind of speaking so factually, like it's clearly a bit of a flashback for her. But then she says, quid pro quo, doctor. Yeah, right, right, and that's right back on track. Up. Oh, it's so exactly. good. This line, uh, the, sorry, this movie is so quotable, right? Oh my God, so much. Like it, it's very well written in terms of its dialogue, I think. And like we said, that comes from the book. It's so yeah. rich source material. This is where he says that Buffalo Bill, quote unquote, thinks he's a transsexual, but he's not. Yeah, so this is a this is a point that we wanted to uh, address. And so, first of all, yeah, he goes on to say that he's thinks he's a transsexual because he hates himself. Uh, and so mm-hmm. he wants to change, but he's not a genuine transsexual. And so obviously the term uh, transsexual is outdated. It's used in the movie, but today we wouldn't use it. And the language around um, sex and gender has just evolved a lot in the time since 1991. And some really important distinctions between sex and gender that we recognize now. And Mm -hmm. so the term that probably would be most appropriate would be uh, transgender. Yeah. Uh, And transgender people are those whose gender identity doesn't correspond with the sex assigned to them at birth. Right. And so that's, yeah, to differentiate between gender and sex is important. Um, And And I think it's interesting because his description of it, number one, I thought it was an interesting concept that his read on Buffalo Bill was basically, you know, he thinks there's something wrong with him. And he has come to the conclusion that his gender is not corresponding to the body that he was born in, right? So therefore, he's not a true transsexual, according to him. But he seems to be speaking mostly about the transition surgery, right? So he's he's kind of saying like, look at all the look at these three hospitals. They will have rejected him because he doesn't meet their criteria for following through with mm-hmm. the you know reassignment surgery. So and it seems like he's he's really speaking mostly about the surgery itself, um, you know, to transition physically. It, it seems to me that Buffalo Bill wants to change something big and fundamental about himself because he realizes. Mm-hmm that there's something wrong and he doesn't fit in with society and he's different than everyone around him. And so the biggest, most fundamental change that he can maybe think of or the first one that comes to mind is this, and he's just trying to kind of solve his problem, but that's obviously not the way. And as we're kind of discussing um, this topic, we want to be very clear um, that we on the pod know that LGBTQ plus topics are important to address competently and correctly. So that's what we're trying to do here. Transgender issues are at the forefront of public consciousness right now, particularly in the U.S. and Canada. And misunderstanding and misinformation have made discussion uh, of these issues in the media really at times inappropriate, hurtful and fraught. So we want to be for ourselves and for you very clear that we support the LGBTQ plus community and all of their rights and freedoms. And that's the standpoint that we come from on the pod. Yeah, this is a, a small-ish aspect of this movie, but we want to it speak is. about it in the right way. Yeah. Especially given Jenna and I aren't members of that community, but we do work closely with them often, right? So, yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, this was 1991, is that right? Yeah. So that, like you said, the nomenclature was a little different. Yeah. The understanding of these issues was a little different. 
And for the time, I don't think that they act like represent it too badly, except for the fact right. that they um, use a term that's now outdated because they do. Clarice does identify pretty immediately that that doesn't really fit for Buffalo Bill anyway, because she describes that uh, people who are transgender are not at like significant risk to be the perpetrators of violence. And we actually right. know now that they're at pretty extreme risk to be the victims of violence. And so she rightfully right. points that out. And that's then where Dr. Lecter says, yeah, you're right. He's not really transgender. Right. And he kind of goes on to to describe what he knows about or speculates about mm-hmm. Buffalo Bill. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, check for childhood violent trauma. He wasn't born a criminal. He was made that way through years of systematic abuse. Like you mentioned, he hates his identity. He's developed a great shame about who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, and so his concept of, of Buffalo Bill is obviously right on. But again, he's pulling a bit of a trick there because he he had the solution already and then worked backwards. Because yeah. he knew who Buffalo Bill was. Yeah, <laughs> We cut to buffalo bill's basement yeah and i again we said um storytelling through set dressing here it gives you like a little almost like not quite a bird's eye but some kind of roaming camera just through through his terrible creepy awful basement that just gives you all these clues to how just like his evil machinations i would say that the scene in his basement between him and Catherine is like an all-timer iconic scene that like you said still would get referenced a lot Mm-hmm. As soon as you start using oh, some of the quotes from it. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is where we see also, like we said, that he's susceptible to recognizing that Catherine is a person mm-hmm. and that making it harder to do wicked things to her. And so we notice it here because as he's telling her to put the lotion on and he's telling her to put the lotion back, like, oh, yeah, this performer, like Catherine Martin, right, is just like, She's so good because she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but I find every moment yeah. that she's there, like she's so relatable and like breaking your heart. And what she does here is saying like, I want my mommy and crying. Yeah, and, so good. And you can see he's getting like visibly distressed. Just such good acting from both of them, right? He's totally. like, he's getting visibly distressed and kind of continuing to try to like third person other her, like it puts the lotion in the basket, finding it harder and harder to do until he finally like yells at her. And she does it. Put the lotion in the fucking basket. Put the lotion in the fucking basket. And that's one thing about him. He has this, like, it's like an uncanny voice. There's something so interesting about the actor's voice, first of all, and then also the way that he brings that to the role of Buffalo Bill. Like, it's almost like he's got, like, molasses in his mouth or something. There's, like, a role to it. Yeah. And his name, the actor's name, I'm forgetting it now. Oh, is Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Yes. Um, he's also in Fast and the Furious number one. Oh, is he? So he's cha- twice changed the world with his acting. Yeah, at least twice. Um, and so as he's bringing the lotion basket up through the well or whatever that she's sitting in, it's got a light on it. And so um, what does it reveal to Catherine? Yeah, so it's a, a great shot following the kind of light and the basket going up. And y- you see some blood and fingernails on the wall of the well so she knows a whole bunch of things all at once there that she's not the first one down there and other people have tried to get out and it doesn't look like it went so well i'm gonna try to find her name so that i can give her props here brooke smith 
testament to her acting here again because she just like absolutely goes to pieces yeah. upon seeing that. And I think that that's exactly what you would do. You'd be on another planet. You'd be so beside yourself in that situation. Gosh, yeah. yeah, it's like she has a very basal reaction. The part where she's screaming like crazy and he starts screaming back at her. Ugh. Like, remember when we talked about the Babadook and I said that that scene where they show Amelia on the newscast and she's smiling through the window, it like creeps me out so bad. I'm like, I can't wait for it to get off the screen. Mm-hmm. Him screaming at Catherine is one of those scenes too. Like, is it, I don't even think it was gleeful like the first one it sounds like he's kind of taunting her but then he seems kind of really uncomfortable too like it's it's gross i think he's mimicking her Mm -hmm. and he's holding his shirt out like it's boobs so you think he's like practicing i think he's practicing i think he's practicing oh my god yeah it's horrifying yeah i think that he's like using her as a model yeah you're probably right because like i'm put off by that scene Oh, yeah, so gross. And I couldn't really tell what he was up to, you know what I mean? So you're probably right. That's a good thought. So after that, we see Dr. Chilton laying on Dr. Lecter's bed. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of chastising him. And he's like, they played you, Hannibal. There was never any deal with the senator. But now there is because I've made one. He's got such contempt for him. And oh. he's he's like mocking him. Yeah, a bad psychiatrist move. Yeah, and then he basically, he makes a deal with the senator to get Lecter to talk to her. And, and Lecter basically says, fine, but I want to talk to her in person, which is wild. And that, that it, he, he gets that opportunity. He gets it. it well, and, and, you know, from the senator's perspective, I think he'd be willing to try anything. But Dr. Chilton's kind of sitting there chewing on his pen, feeling like he, he got one over on Dr. Lecter, which is something that he probably very rarely gets that feeling. Mm-hmm. So he's very much relishing in it. And Dr. Lecter is in his amazing like half hockey mask, which is like, again, all time iconic mask right up there with the Michael Myers mask. Oh, yeah. Or Freddy's glove and all this stuff like the, uh, the Hannibal Lecter mask. That's Halloween costume fodder for sure. Right. Exactly. Did we mention how much the camera was absolutely loving that pen that Dr. <laughs> Chilton was fiddling with? It's. It's true. There's like a crash zoom on this pen that Dr. Chilton leaves on his bed. Lecter gets the pen, but I have absolutely no idea how he does it. I agree. I agree. Like he was basically chained to a dolly and was in his mask and everything. And he stares at the pen and you can see his eyes lock with the pen. And then later he uses a piece of it. But I've got no clue at all how he would have picked up that pen. He must have like dexterous butt cheeks or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably it. He's probably been training them. There's not much else to do. Um, and during during this scene as well, like they're in a big airplane hangar. It's all so dramatic. Uh, oh, yeah. They they wheel him out on his like fucking moving dolly like, to uh, to talk to Senator Martin. And yeah, she's got major moxie, too. We just felt like she was so self-assured. And even during I can't even imagine the turmoil she's going through. Uh, when she's talking to this convicted serial killer. But yeah, she holds her own, absolutely. Yeah, and he he does kind of push her a little too far when he's asking if she breastfed Catherine and if it hardened her nipples. Just being so disgusting and clearly getting something out of it. Referencing a, a phantom limb, saying that um, when you, you still feel a phantom limb. Um, so actually, that's something that is uh, is a really interesting 
phenomenon, phantom limb syndrome, which uh, an effective treatment for it can be this really interesting thing where you you use a mirror to deceive the eye and show them where the missing limb was. And you can use that technique to um, alleviate some discomfort. For example, if I'm missing my left hand, they feel itchiness on that left hand. Yeah, or pain sometimes. Or right? pain. But if you have like uh, the mirror trick that I'm talking about, they use it to reflect where the left hand would be, for example, and then you could scratch it. Yeah, that's so interesting, eh? A study findings showed that self-delivered mirror therapy is indeed effective for phantom pain. It's another one of the scenes where Hannibal Lecter is very downlit. And so there's lots of kind of creepy shadows on him. He does give a description of a person to the group that's with the senator. He says, he's about 180 pounds. He blah, 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 blah. And he gives a fake name again. So it was what? Oh, it's another anagram. Lewis Friend. Lewis Friend, which is an anagram Clarice later finds out for fool's gold, which is iron sulfide. So then, like, everyone's off to the races because they think they have a description, a height, a weight, and the name of Buffalo Bill. And they bring Lecter to his new cell, which is basically like a big metal cage inside of a... Inside of a museum. Right. I think. Right. That's what it looks like to me. I think you're right. So she visits him in this this big kind of cage that he's in his new place. And they have one more back and forth, right? So she's kind of trying to mine for a bit more information from him, but he's a little bit less forthcoming with her at this point. But he does give her a hint that the core of what Buffalo Bill does is that he covets. Mm -hmm. And he covets the things that must be familiar to him and around him. That's how he starts. And so that does become something that's important and kind of helps her crack the case. But she has very, very limited time with Lecter at this point and eventually gets, like, literally dragged away. Yeah, and Dr. Chilton goes and basically tells the cop, like, she shouldn't be here. Yes, yeah, oh, right? fucking meddling Dr. <laughs> Chilton. <laughs> yeah, he's Miserable awful. guy. We were saying as well, like, speaking um, as someone who has a unit that is very specifically designed to make sure that people don't have anything in it that could allow them to hurt themselves or others... <laughs> this does not meet any criteria in that regard. No, he's got everything. <laughs> he's in a much more lax cell. And at one point, like they were going to bring him dinner and there's glass salt and pepper shakers on the tray. There's tons of furniture that guarantee you it has screws in it. And of like big fat chunks of wood, like that you could hurt someone with or hurt yourself with, cut yourself. There's yeah. any number of things. Not even talking about the, you know, escape attempts, but just to, yeah, to hurt yourself or another person. For sure. They weren't prepared anyway. So him negotiating this move kind of got him exactly what he wanted, which is like he was going to a place in a very hurried way where obviously they weren't prepared to deal with the amount of risk that he presents. A, being so sinister and B, being so smart. Right. So. The cops are trying to bring him his second dinner where he has ordered rare lamb chops and they're bitching about it, right? They're like, oh, this guy, blah, 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 Mr. Fancy Pants. It's not really up to him, but he invites the uh, the two officers in and yeah, they're kind of bitching about um, bringing him the second dinner, more or less because they feel like, why are we catering to this guy who's a killer? And Why are we catering to this bad man? One guy is pretty rude and snarky about it. The other guy is a little bit more passive. And as they go in, 
the slightly more passive guy is about to put his dinner down and Hannibal says, like, could you be careful of the pictures that he's been sketching, which yes. are of, of Clarice holding a lamb. In, like, a Victorian portrait. Yeah. She looks like Mona Lisa, but with a bob <laughs> and a lamb. Uh, and anyway, he ha- asks that this uh, officer move them, and he does politely move them to put down the uh, the dinner. And then as he's moving things around, uh, he gets near to Hannibal, and that's when Hannibal kind of reveals by handcuffing the police the officer to the uh cage that he has gotten out of his cuffs and his on the loose yeah and and that's an amazing scene too because it's the first time we really see him in action and he goes right up to the cop's partner and just like begins biting his face Mm -hmm. oh and like he goes like like it's like it's almost like Gollum. oh he's so scary very scary scene one thing that i noticed is that i feel like he was a bit more cruel and inflicted maybe more pain on the guy who was ruder, which just is it fitting with what we've seen from Hannibal to this point. And they legit reference that in the book. Like it, it's mm. it's in there that he intentionally is like not merciful, but swifter in killing the other guy who he just bashes with a baton. Yes. A whole bunch. And I was saying he's almost like a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And the way that he moves. He's like poised and there's like flourish in his swings and his breath is controlled. There's some kind of elegant aspect almost, if you could call it that, or graceful. Yeah. And so after he he kills the two cops as well, there are a whole bunch of police officers that are on the bottom floor that hear a gunshot. Right. It was a gunshot. Yeah. And then they're like, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like following their protocols. And then they see the elevator coming down and they're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're, they're thinking Dr. Lecter's coming down. And once they get up there, they find what they think are the two bodies of the dead cops. Right. Oh, and one of them displayed pretty prominently. Yeah. Oh yeah. So when they come up, one of them's like, what would you say? Eviscerated? Yeah. Like crucified and eviscerated. <laughs> Somehow at the top of the cage. Yeah, yeah. Who knows, logistically speaking, how he pulled that off, but it is a wild image. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, again, horror movie here, definitely. And then the other guy, they realize, is alive. And so they um, start taking him out on a stretcher, and he starts to, it appears, seize or something like that. He starts to shake. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of all this chaos, they're maybe not paying as much attention to things as they should. And so they get this guy into the elevator, this injured police officer. They're going down in the elevator. Some blood starts dripping down from the ceiling. And so they think, okay, Dr. Lecter's above us, right? So they're like, get this guy out of here, get him into the ambulance. So then they send some police officers up a few floors and they see the body laying on top of the elevators they expected. And they're like, put your hands up, put your hands behind your back. I'm going to shoot you if you don't move. Yeah. And then they do shoot him and, and, it and doesn't the body move. doesn't react at all. <laughs> so that tells you it's a dead body all dressed in the in Lecter's outfit. And then we're in the ambulance. Yeah, and that's when... A, also another really super iconic image and scene of Lecter, mm-hmm. like, oh, sitting up and taking the, well, the flayed face of, like, his victim off of his own face and then getting the ambulance attendant, or a- EMT, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty terrifying, pretty iconic, very cool. And horrific, I think we can agree. Yeah, and do you know what's a, another point about about that that I didn't pick up on, but I probably read it somewhere, is that they point out as well, 
they they read out what they think is the victim, uh, the police officer. They think it is um, his heart rate, and it was like also not not a right. really high. I think it was like ninety or something, which is yeah. that's a cool clue. Yeah, it's another time to show you just like the blood, uh, sorry, the ice in his veins kind of thing. Yes, it's off to the races. He's escaped. He's commandeered this ambulance, killed the EMTs, killed the driver, and then we flash back to. Clarice, who's decided to go to the place where the first body is from. And there was some debate because the first body of a victim wasn't the first one that was found. Because it's yes. the only one that he decided to weigh down in the water, right? She realizes that, like, Lecter gave me this clue about coveting. And he says, what do you what do you covet? The things that you know. And so then that's, yeah. that's why they think, like, oh, okay, wait, why was this one victim and one of them only weighed down and mm-hmm. found later? And it's they kind of deduce that it's because he knew her. And so it yeah. was more vital that that body not be found than any of the other ones because it would connect him back. Uh, that's when Clarice decides to go to that town and kind of track that down. So she goes to Belvedere. Is that Belvedere, Ohio? I think that's where she goes, yeah. Yeah, so she goes to, she goes to Frederica, the first victim's home, talks to the dads, and he says, you know, the police have been all over the place before. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think you're going to really find anything. And that's when she goes up to her closet and she sees those diamonds taken out mm-hmm. of the back of a dress, right? Which you were yes. mentioning is like one of the ways, it's like an important step in dressmaking. Yes. And then the like, she also on this visit, um, she touches base with one of uh, Frederica's friends who identifies that she uh, used to work for Mrs. Littman, who was like, I guess a seamstress that she worked with or would uh, share projects with or something like that, which then leads her to Mrs. Littman's house. Yes, right. And so she sees the diamonds on the back of the dress. She recognizes that those are the pieces of skin that were missing from. Uh, Mm -hmm. the victims in like pattern making uh, which is a a sewing thing right and so she clues in that oh this is a serial killer who's killing women to take their skin and to wear their skin she calls um crawford to when she realizes that and she's all excited it's bubbling out of her she's saying why that this ties everything together to her why the uh, the victims are like a little bit more overweight so that he can loosen the skin by starving them in order to yeah. take it and make a suit. And so she's describing all this as just like bubbling out of her. She's got so much energy and she's exhilarated yes. again. And he kind of like takes the wind out of her sails a little bit. Starling, Starling, we already know who it is. We're on our way there. And they're in the biggest airplane ever. From the smallest airplane to the biggest <laughs> airplane. But he's... Yeah, they're on like an honest to goodness like army plane that they would like roll cars out yeah yeah like carry tanks in (laughs) they they know where they're going they've got an image of this guy they think that they've got everything and so she Mm -hmm. goes then what she thinks is like a b-plot secondary kind of mission side quest she goes on a side quest to uh (laughs) mrs Littman's house and that yeah that's where they have their first face-to-face yeah so she does indeed meet jame gum which is the real name of Buffalo Bill. And do you think she gets bad vibes from him like immediately when they're speaking in the doorway? I think that she gets bad vibes when he says, was she a great big fat person? Yes. 
Because she, I feel like she stiffens up at that point. And what does she say? Like, yes, she was a big girl yeah. or something like that. Yes. Right? It's like an offensive thing to say. Of and course. so she's like, well, God, who says that? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Oh, wait. She's a great <laughs> big fat person. <laughs> yeah. And so she walks in there and they're basically having a standoff before anyone's done anything. They're staring at each other. He's getting her some card to look someone up. And oh, yes, because she's like she realizes that Mrs. Lippman doesn't live here anymore. He does now. And so she's asking if maybe there's a business card. Yeah. But as she's doing that, she's just like looking around her and like clues abound. So she's putting all the pieces together. There's a bunch of thread. So she knows that he's a. A, ta- a tailor of some kind or like a skilled sewist. Seamster. And there's images of butterflies and moths like on the wall. There's a literal moth flying around. Yes, exactly. And uh, so all these things are just adding up and she's trying to keep her cool. But she like quietly cocks her gun uh, on her hip as he's looking at the cards. He starts to kind of give the game away and starts to like laugh or like and right. and then she goes she takes her gun out and tells him to put his hands up. And at that point, yeah, he runs around the corner and little does she know he's got a gun right around that corner. A big one. A big fat gun. And then he goes uh, goes down into the basement and she has to follow him, but she has no idea where the hell he is. And it's this labyrinthine basement. Yes. And like, this is just, like I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, just the moments of tension. This is mm-hmm. like one of the scariest sustained few minutes in a movie ever. It's so tense. It's you're so you're on the edge of your seat the whole time if you don't know what's happening. Like if you haven't seen it before, I should say. Yeah, so I think you you described it well and this is right from the book again, but he has like a sprawling basement that goes in all these directions and has way more rooms than you would think and it's got like a dirt floor in some places and so she looks into and sees the room full of mannequins that have women's skin that's being made into an almost completed suit and she just kind of looks at it and keeps going because she kind of already knew that she would be finding something like that and eventually she makes her way into the room that has a well in it where she finds Catherine martin and she's like Catherine martin you're safe yeah and i'm like well that is a bit of a leap i don't think she's very safe hopefully you will be and i i love Again, the performance from Brooke Smith, because she she's like, hey, get me out of here. And which is exactly what you'd be saying, obviously. But Clarice has bigger fish to fry. And so she, yeah. she tells her, I've got to leave this room because she's still looking for where this guy is. And uh, and Catherine goes, don't you leave me here, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. Too. Yeah, like... and I think that you would be I agree. You would be so at your wits end and out of sorts. Yeah, you'd be saying anything. Yeah, he'd be like, don't go anywhere, please. Yeah, I'd be, jump down in this well with me. Just let me have another person who's not trying to kill me. <laughs> and they do end up in a room where, does he cut power? Is that what happens? Yes. So they end up in a room together, she and Buffalo Bill, and he's able to turn the power off and he dons his night vision goggles. So Clarice is in like perfect pitch black and it's a very voyeuristic scene because they show us his point of view. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, following right behind her. He even, like, sticks his hand out. Yeah, and, and like, almost touches her hair. Yeah. So even in the midst of this situation, he's not thinking practically at all. Like, he's no wrapped up in some experience he's having, you know, with her being a woman and being in his basement and all this stuff. And being his victim. Yeah, for sure. He's, like, 
he, yeah, he was going to, like, stroke her hair. He's just, he's not, oh. he doesn't immediately kill her. He's watching her stumble around. Like, he gets something out of that. Yeah, and she's trying to, like, she can't see a thing. She's stumbling into things. She has her gun cocked. And then he basically raises his giant gun. It's like a Desert Eagle or some <laughs> huge hand cannon. And cocks it. And she hears it and is able to dive down and shoot him. Yeah, and I think that that's one little point of this movie that is just, it's just so clever. Because we see her, it's just a good bit of storytelling. We see her cock it before. And the fact that she did that is what saves her. Because she's got the amount of time it takes to cock a gun to turn around and shoot him. Because him cocking his gun is the only amount of time that she has. And do you think it was a bit of a reference back to her training and and checking? Obviously, she can't check her blind spots with her eyes, but she was aware of the sound behind her. Well, and I I did think that it was a callback to her checking her corners, because as you watch her before the lights are turned out, she's checking every room and corner and shutting the doors as she goes and then putting things in front of them so that she's like, that's checked. And I know he's not coming from there. I think that she's using her training there. And then another thing that I thought was just like a good a good bit of movie making is the fact that her shooting him also shoots out the window behind him and makes it bright in the basement again. So we're able to kind of see that, yeah, he has been shot. We see him die. We know that she's safe and see all that happen. And then it seems pretty quickly out of that, she's being ushered out of the house, like literally under Jack Crawford's arm. And things wrap up pretty quickly from there, right? Like they end up at their graduation and Crawford's there. The bug man is there. Well, yeah, because he's her boyfriend. (laughs) And Clarice has to leave the uh, festivities to go receive a call. So, yes, she does get a call from Dr. Lecter, who is looking far more put together and kind of fancy again. He's got, like, dyed blonde hair, doesn't he? Well, I I think he's got maybe a wig. Oh, okay, right. And he's in, like, a Tommy Bahama kind of shirt, and he is indeed in the Bahamas. And he's there to basically spoil Dr. Chilton's <laughs> vacation. vacation. <laughs> but he says another, like, oh, it's such a choice line. When he's like, well, I can't talk to you for too long, Clarice. I'm having an old friend for dinner. And it's like the, the double speak that he's doing yeah. is so good. <laughs> and then he does just walk off and they roll credits, right? Like, he disappears into a big crowd. And, and he's still right? kind of, like, slowly chasing Dr. Chilton. I wanted to ask you, like, just generally speaking, why do you think that we and so many other people are so captivated by Dr. Hannibal Lecter in particular? I think that uh, we're very interested by really extreme behavior. I think that's pretty natural. And you kind of don't get much more extreme than A, serial killing, and B, cannibalism. And then to, to mix that with the sophistication and the charm Yes. Kind of a a really intriguing combo. Yeah, I agree. And I think he's almost like, uh, not that he's a contradiction, but he is a paradox, right? Mm -hmm. So he's a super smart, super successful was type of person who also has this like preoccupation that is just beyond the pale of what anyone could have ever kind of conceived of or predicted, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's at the same time, super smart and super successful, but is also a passionate serial killer and very, yeah, like you said, in a very taboo way as well. He is vicious and he's ruthless and he's disgusting. And he's also fancy and polite 
and well read and well spoken and well traveled <laughs> you know and very knowledgeable so and charming it's kind of fun in a fictional way to totally. think like okay so how could a person be both of those things mm-hmm. or all of those things so jenna and i are not diagnosticians no it is not within my scope to diagnose nor myself and so that might be a misconception sometimes about therapy so like depending who your therapist is a lot of times at least in our area they don't have the power to diagnose but i was wondering in terms of the dsm-5 the diagnostic statistical manual 5 which is used to diagnose patients with psychiatric disorders i was wondering if any particular disorders came to mind in terms of the fictional character of dr Lecter. and so Some of the disorders in the manual fall under the umbrella of personality disorders. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what we're looking at and what people would be talking about quite a bit when they're talking about Dr. Lecter. And Mm -hmm. some words that are bandied about quite a bit, which I would not use either of them, are psychopath and sociopath. And so the reason that I wouldn't use either of them, and I'm not even going to go into to any trouble to um, try to define them, is because they're not actual like clinical diagnostic terms. So I just don't really right. think it's worth it. It's more of like a colloquialism. It's, it's vernacular that a physician wouldn't use. And whatever whatever their original iterations were as well, those words, they've certainly taken off into the public kind of zeitgeist, right? Where it, they're such buzzwords. Oh, certainly. They're used so, so often. Right. But I think what we might be looking at um, under the umbrella of personality disorders with Hannibal Lecter, I think what um, might most appropriately be applied would be antisocial personality disorder because he does meet Mm -hmm. um, some of the criteria for that. And so we're looking at uh, failure to conform to social norms with respect to the law. Definitely he meets that one. Deceitfulness. Definitely that. He lies all over the place, all of his anagrams. (laughs) <laughs> uh irritable and aggressive yeah definitely i i think that violent assaults uh would fall under that certainly aggressive uh reckless disregard for the safety of others certainly fair to say uh lack of remorse and this isn't this isn't literally all of the criteria i'm listing off the ones that i think i feel like most apply to him but you don't need to meet all the criteria to to fall under that category um, also, an important to note is that uh, in order to be diagnosed with that, you need to be an adult. Uh, children cannot be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And I believe, in fact, so that's a good point to make because you work with adults and I work with kids. Mm-hmm. So I certainly have never worked with somebody who's had a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder before, but I have worked with people who would have been diagnosed with conduct disorder, which would be the diagnosis that would proceed antisocial personality disorder because it applies to children rather than adults. Yeah. And that's another criterion is um, there's evidence of conduct disorder uh, with onset before the age of 15 years old. Right. Oh, also another really important criteria is that this behavior is not happening during the course of a psychotic episode. Right. Good point. And so it, you know, obviously with Dr. Lecter, it's, it's stable over many years. Right. So it's not that he's it's not that he's having a psychotic episode and goes into, you know, a violent kind of episode as well. It's just that that's him. That's the way he's wired. And he's planful. He's logical. He's not psychotic. Yes, true. So obviously, antisocial personality disorder is a real diagnosis. It's not a common one. 
No, not a common one. One of the psychologists who I work with, who I respect very much, he gave me the example that with a lot of diagnoses, we should almost consider them to be metaphors, mm-hmm. right? And so you're somewhere along a million spectrums all at once, mm-hmm. right? And so it's about thresholds. Mm-hmm. So you have to meet criteria. And once you meet this many criteria for something, then you can meet the criteria for that disorder, right? And, you know, people might present differently, and they don't all look the same. So yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that he would meet more than the necessary diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. And antisocial, when we hear it in a kind of everyday layman type way, it sounds like a person who's introverted, but antisocial in this case, meaning they're doing things that are against social norms. Yeah, that are exactly they They go way against social norms and not just the little ones, the big ones. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and he certainly does. Like don't eat people like don't eat people. And uh, obviously, this is a an overblown fictional case. The fact that he's a cannibal, the fact that he's a serial killer, like this is bombastic. Mm. And it doesn't really represent uh, at all what we would see from a person diagnosed with that. But Dr. Lecter would likely meet that diagnostic criteria at any rate. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also pretty clear he's a narcissist as well. So Mm -hmm. he would sail through, you know, any kind of uh, test for narcissistic personality disorder as well. I think he and Dr. Chilton both kind of have a God complex. And that's one of the reasons they probably butted heads so much as well. Oh, yeah, certainly. (laughs) Um, yeah, so any final thoughts on the movie? Any kind of scenes that really stick out? Oh, well, I I almost feel like there's too many to, to say, but final thoughts for sure. for sure are that it's still one of my favorite movies. It's just a joy to watch, a joy to watch. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, it's yeah, still you put it on, you put it on when your parents come over yeah, or something. Still holds up more than 30 years later. Isn't that right? Yeah, more than Oh my God, I had such a terrible experience because, you know, Jenna said, well, why don't we do Silence of the Lambs? We love that movie. And I said, yeah, but we usually switch between like a more modern movie, a more vintage movie. And we got to do a vintage movie next. She's like, well, it is like 30 years old and kind of my life up to this point kind of flashed before my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, sorry, you're vintage as vintage as this movie. But yeah, I, th- I think that it, it's one of my favorite movies and it's going to probably stay that way. Like I was saying, all throughout, just the performances are so good. Yes. It's so quotable. I had to, like, hold myself back from quoting and mimicking more than I did. And I know I did a fair amount. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. I think we both did it. And from, like, a, a psychiatric or, like, representation of mental health kind of perspective, I mean, probably not great, but it gets people thinking about it. Basically, everyone involved in the psychiatric aspect of it were very dubious actors. So that's bad, but I don't think that people would take away from it, oh, that's a representation of the the discipline of psychology and psychiatry. They were just like, those were two bad dudes. Yeah, two bad and I hope it, it just gets people a little bit interested in, Yeah, which is something that I'm forever interested in, which is why I love my job, is that the way that your brain and your mind and your psyche works is so interesting it's enough to fill up an entire lifetime and you'll net you'll never learn all the intricacies of it so i hope it just makes people interested yeah and we could go on and on about this the psychiatric overtones undertones <laughs> that's why you know, we, we that's could, why we have this podcast <laughs> we could do a whole other episode but it is at its base just an excellent horror movie filled with tension filled with suspense and it happens to be really smart really well crafted as well 
not to bring it back to much more Oscar bashing, but um, you know mm. that this is one of six horror movies nominated for Best Picture. What are the other ones? Why don't you try to try to guess two, and I'll give you the other three. Okay, Psycho. Nope. Oh, Jaws. Yes. Um, uh, The Shining. Mm-mm. No, what is it? So we have Silence of the Lambs, which won, mm-hmm. which I think is the only one to have won. And also Black Swan. Okay, okay. Get Out, which absolutely deserves it. Mm-hmm. Jaws, again, mm-hmm. absolutely deserves it. The Sixth Sense as well. Yeah, very good. The Exorcist. Okay. Well, all very deserving. Indeed. And this is the only one to have won. And this is the only horror movie to have ever won Best Adapted Screenplay, which I think is like patently absurd. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's one that The Shining could have won. So many great horror movies come from a great book. You know, like mm-hmm. horror is a very kind of rich uh, genre of literature, I think. And like Stephen King is one of the top 25 best-selling authors of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's probably also because he's written like 100 million books, but obviously they sell really well as well. And so many of them have been made into awesome, uh, you know, movie or TV properties as well. Oh, horror TV is so fucking good, which is probably really hard to do. Like to, to keep it scary over the course of like multiple episodes. And to balance the tension too, because you got to also have a, a narrative come through and you got to like balance your kind of stabs of horror very well. One day we'll talk about Hill House on this podcast. I absolutely love it. I was going to say, our, we're talking Michael Flanagan here. Or Michael Flanagan? Mike Flanagan. Because we're major Flana fans over here. His friends call him Mike, so I call him Mike. Well, this movie is absolutely amazing. And anyone who hasn't seen it, how dare you? And you should definitely check it out as well. So thank you guys so much for joining us again and, and listening to this episode. We were so excited to talk about this movie and we could go on and on, hmm. but we won't. And we have. And, uh, <laughs> and we have. <laughs> and yeah, I really hope you can join us next time. And, you know, if you have an opportunity to leave us a review, those go a really long way uh, for getting this podcast yeah. out there, which we really appreciate. Uh, review, comment, or email are all very welcome. Yes. The fear response podcast at gmail.com. If you'd be interested in sending us an email and as usual, you know, Jenna and I are immersed in the work that we're talking about in the mental health field, but we don't consider ourselves as experts and we certainly aren't infallible in terms of what we might kind of talk about on this podcast. So if anyone had any kind of different perspective or anything like that, we'd always love to hear from you in that regard as well. Yeah, we're not the foremost authority uh, on the subject, but we are um, dedicated working professionals and we love the field. Um, So yeah, any questions, comments, concerns, we do welcome them. Okay, thanks very much. Take care, everybody. Bye. Lily Rae. Do you know she and Hamish Linklater are together? Oh, really? I like that Mm. for them. I like that. They're both kind of spooky and creepy and cool. Because she's in all the American Horror Story stuff. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I I don't know as much about her, but I'm a big Laterhead for sure. (laughs) Really love him. Yeah. I I think think they're called Later Boys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
<laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with the later boys on this one. Like sure. Linklater boys? I don't know if you'd say that. <laughs> well, let me see. I said Linklater boy. Yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if if the fandom of that particular man didn't have a name, well, you're welcome. Oh, but it would be like Link late, like L eight. Oh, like, yeah. Er boy. L the number eight <laughs> R B O I. Yeah, that's how.